0: What's happening, everybody? Welcome to another thought-provoking, life-changing episode of Jazz Topia. It is a beautiful day here in Brooklyn, New York, and allergy season is upon us in full force. <clears throat> Hope you're doing well out there. I'm having a nice little time out here. Uh, no complaints, just digging into some new music and uh, trying to make some stuff. Uh, Trying to ride out this whole coronavirus quarantine. Hopefully uh, we'll be out of here before you know it. There's a lot of great music coming out these days. I've been happy to see some really good albums coming out. My uh, former guest, uh, Joe Morris, has come out with yet another album. So this has got to be week three in a row or something. He's come out with an album. still he's got 150 albums out to his name i got to stop promoting these because there's just too many of them to promote. It's it's an unbelievable body of work. But Joe Morris has a record out with Ken Vandermark, the great saxophonist, reed player of various kinds. Ken Vandermark, amazing improviser. Uh, They've got a record out this week called Consequent Duos Series 2, which is about the free jazzist album title I've heard in a long time. I haven't gotten a chance to check it out yet, but both Joe and Ken Vandermark are absolutely phenomenal improvisers. I'm really looking forward to checking that out. Uh, there's also a record coming out on Friday, on May 15th, by uh, pianist Lucian Ben, Lucian Ban, Bon, Lucian Bon, L-U-C-I-A-N-B-A-N. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but check it out. And John Sermon and uh, Matt Mineri, the amazing Matt Mineri. They have a record coming out called Transylvanian Folk Songs, uh, coming out on Sunnyside Records, and that is uh, improvisations based on the transcriptions of Romania, uh, yeah, Romanian Transylvanian Folk Songs that, that Bela Bartok uh, transcribed and recorded, field recorded, many, many, many years ago. And I got to hear a little bit of that, a little preview of that, and it sounds amazing. I'm thrilled to check that out. That's going to be very cool. Uh, saxophonist Michael Thomas has a new album out, Event Horizon, with his quartet. You may know Michael from the Terraza 7 big band. Uh, he's an amazing saxophone player. I'm really looking forward to checking that out as well. Michael never disappoints. <clears throat> those allergies. Ho-ho! And finally, on Friday, Brian Crocs Big Heart Machine is coming out with a new album, live at the Jazz Gallery. Uh... The Big Heart Machine's really a a fascinating organization, fascinating big band, uh, really interesting colors, great writing. Be sure to check that out. I'm sure it'll be awesome. Really looking forward to it. We're going to try to get Brian on the program pretty soon here, talk about his process and the music, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And lastly, in one and a half weeks, on May 22nd, my own album is coming out, Revenge of the Cool. Uh, I've been with my nonette, I've been uh, I've been working on putting this album out for about a year now, and I'm thrilled to finally get this music out there. It's all original music for the instrumentation from Miles Davis's Birth of the Cool, featuring uh, a lot of my uh, very creative and inspiring friends, and I'm I'm really happy to get to get it out to the people and for you to be able to hear some of the magnificent solos and performances by all the people who are involved. All right. Well, this week, under normal circumstances, I was planning on heading back up to my hometown of West Newbury, Massachusetts, to be involved in the 20th anniversary of my high school's uh, jazz program. Now, uh, unfortunately, uh, for obvious reasons, that has been canceled or postponed or turned into an online thing, Uh, but I wanted to do something with this to sort of commemorate that event nonetheless. So my guest this week is the great composer and music educator, saxophonist, David Schumacher. Now, David was my high school jazz instructor. He taught both the big band and our high school jazz combo, uh, as well as, sorry about these allergies, gang, as well as... The, uh, after I left, he started several other kind of uh, improvisation, blues, ensembles, this kinds of things. Uh, now, David is also a great composer, uh, led for many years, or co-led, I should say, the Schumacher-Sanford Sound Assembly with J.C. Sanford, which included uh, some of the greatest musicians in New York City, including John Hollenbeck on drums, John Bailey on trumpet, Ben Kono on saxophone, and a, a number of other really amazing musicians, and they wrote some spectacular music for that. You can check out their album, Edge of the Mind, is on all the normal platforms, and it's a really beautiful record, a really spectacular performance, and an amazing blending of composition and improvisation. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but David, I wanted to say, really is a, is a brilliant educator, and I I know that, for me, it was inspiring to get to study with him in high school, because at the same time he was teaching us, he was working on, you know, producing this big band in New York, and writing new compositions, and he was really in the scene. He'd studied with Bob Brookmeyer, and studied at NEC, he studied with Branford Marsalis, and he was really a, uh, you know, he was a, he, he when, when, while I was studying with him, he's still active for sure, and he's doing his thing, but I mean to say... Uh, back in the day when I was in high school, we really looked up to him because not only was he our teacher, but he was he was really in the scene. He was doing the thing. And he treated the program as though we were professionals in many respects. He gave us the respect to say, hey, listen, you know, you got to do your work, but you're aiming for being a creative improviser. He, he, he really instilled in us a, a respect and a love and appreciation for the music that has compelled a lot of us to continue on to this very day. Uh, there's a lot of people in that program. It's a very, very small school in uh, in the northeastern Massachusetts on the coast, and it's uh, there was never a lot of people in the program, and there were <clears throat> all these allergies, and uh, there was never a ton of funding. But but David Schumacher really uh, really made it a spectacular program. It continues on to this day. They've been going in, crushing the Berkeley high school competition and playing music all over the place, and uh, David's always had a lot of really interesting things to say about music education and his approach and his philosophy to shaping the minds of young jazz musicians, or maybe maybe that's not the right way to put it, maybe encouraging their own explorations in such a way that they uh, propel forward into the music with open minds and uh, a strong sense of artistry. So, I wanted to talk to David not only because it's the 20th anniversary of the program, but also because I knew he'd have some interesting things to say about how to teach during the coronavirus. Uh, obviously, jazz music is a very interactive improvisational art and it typically, I mean, it requires that everybody be listening to each other and reacting to each other in the same space in the same time. So that poses, th- this whole quarantine situation poses a lot of serious challenges for the educators who are trying to convey the art to younger musicians, and, uh, and I, I knew that David would have some really interesting things to say on his approach and philosophy in that regard. And sure enough, he did. So, without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce David Schumacher, Well, congratulations on the 20th anniversary of uh, Cafe Jazz at Pentucket High School. Is that for, is that is that the the 20th year that you were there? Have you did you start at the the first year? Yes, so I started
1: in the fall of 2000 and the first Cafe Jazz concert was the spring of 2001. Okay. So, uh, you know, the math gets a little confusing, but yes, this would have been the 20th spring, so the 20th um, episode of the spring edition
0: sure and you do it differently than the average band director might run a jazz uh concert and it, oftentimes it's either incorporated into the uh the regular band thing or it's in an auditorium but you chose to do it as a as a cafe kind of vibe where people can eat and drink sodas and other non-alcoholic uh beverages and and check out the music in the cafeteria as opposed to the the concert uh, the kind of whatever it is the concert venue yeah
1: so i can't claim ownership of the concept it was actually my middle school and high school jazz band director okay he he did the concerts so when i was in sixth grade and joined the jazz band for the first time that's how he ran his concerts in the cafeteria lights off it was very intimate atmosphere and uh you know food refreshments it was pretty casual and it was a lot of fun so i wanted to start that when i came to pentucket to uh to loosen things up and get that intimate jazz club sort of vibe going
0: yeah it's a slick move for sure and it must have been i mean you must have gotten that that atmosphere i mean that must have been why he did it in the first place what was the name of your teacher
1: so dick Rabidou was his name
0: uh-huh out in plattsburgh new york right
1: plattsburgh new york you got it
0: yeah what was it all right so we'll we'll transport back in time so i'm gonna cover i want to cover two grounds here all right you've got you live two separate lives as many music teachers do uh, one as an artist and as a composer and uh, that that whole element of your thing and then also as a music teacher you know and sometimes it's it's fun to see uh, you don't realize maybe I think we we kind of knew but you don't realize sometimes when you're studying with people in school that they've got a whole other world of expertise that they're dealing with as well um, <clears throat> So you started in Plattsburgh what was it that drove you down the treacherous path to? to jazz? Well, uh, that
1: experience in sixth grade, being in the jazz band, really hooked me right away. Uh, Dig Rabbity was a great teacher and very inspiring, and it was a lot of fun to sit in that band and play that music. We spent a lot of time listening, so it opened my ears to different things. He took us up to the Montreal Jazz Festival as a little field trip in the summer every year, Mm -hmm. so we got to hear some great bands up there and enjoy the atmosphere that festival brings. So, you know, that was also somewhat addicting to be involved with that.
0: Sure. And so you, you followed it from there. You got out of high school and you went to Michigan, right?
1: Yeah, I was recruited at Michigan State as a classical saxophone major. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And then... Um, the second year I was there, I think uh, blew out my jaw, had to stop playing for about a year and a half, go into physical therapy and the whole thing, um, relearned how to play in a different way that was less stressful to my anatomy uh, and shifted my focus to my jazz playing because mm-hmm. it was more forgiving in those ways Interesting. and gave up the classical route.
0: Now, when you say you blew out your jaw, what does that mean?
1: So basically, I woke up one day and couldn't open my mouth. Okay. Right? So the, the cartilage, it's a ball and socket joint, your jaw, mm-hmm. and the cartilage displaced from the joint. And so that blocked the mechanism from working properly. Sure. So it took some manipulation to get the cartilage back into place, so the jaw functioned properly. But once it's displaced, the ligament is stretched and it never goes back properly okay. what does that require
0: so, is that like a surgery thing or is that a physical just a physical therapy thing or how do you do that well
1: physical therapy to get it back into place and some exercises to pop it back in if it popped out but yeah ultimately surgery was the not permanent but we'll call it semi-permanent solution the problem was that given my activity as a saxophone player it was just going to happen again i was going to stretch that <sighs> ligament out again Sure. And I was just going to have to repeat the whole thing. And in the process of the surgery, you risk nerve damage to the lower lip and the jaw and everything like that. So it was a little too risky for me. Yeah. So essentially, the cartilage was permanently displaced. Physical therapy to get the joint to work properly without it. So basically a a, a um, callus inside the joint. Mm-hmm. And then went from there.
0: What's that called? Is there a name for that? TMJ. Okay, is gotcha. the
1: is the vernacular so it's yeah. temporal mandibular joint, and they just if you've got that condition they just call it TMJ.
0: Sure, and that's a plague. I mean, it's tough in music because you're you're privy to the possibility of having something fall apart, and then you got to figure out how to operate within that context. I've seen that happen to many people. That's Absolutely. A tough deal. And is that what drove you from play? Did you then continue to play saxophone? I mean, obviously you still play saxophone to some degree. But is that what then drove you? Is, is that the moment where you said, all right, I'm going to be a composer now?
1: Right. Yeah, it was. So I, I went through a couple of iterations. Once I left the classical saxophone major, I went and did a music ed major for about a semester. Realized that that's not the direction I wanted to go and switched over to the composition major to finish out my undergrad and then continued with the jazz studies Uh, focus on composition in grad school.
0: Okay. And you went to grad school at New England Conservatory. I did. Your alma mater. You uh, you went straight from Michigan to NEC, yeah?
1: I did. Yeah.
0: And you studied with Bob Brookmeyer. And who else was at NEC at the time that you were working with?
1: Well, I spent the majority of my two years studying with him. I spent one semester studying with Bevan Manson on piano. Mm Mm-hmm working on some voicings and things like that uh but those were the only two teachers i had private lesson
0: okay and then that's what you did is you did all composition it was the was it still the nec jazz composers what what is that called what was it uh
1: jazz composers workshop yeah 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 so i i, I did as much playing as i could but as a comp focus i didn't get priority in the ensembles. performance majors did Mm -hmm. so I did as much playing as I could in different ensembles small and large and then when I left uh Brookmeyer had me stick around to play in his composers ensemble for another year which was really great
0: interesting so you're out of school but you were still what hanging around and playing in his um what was that within NEC you're talking about
1: yeah it was it was the jazz composers workshop that he ran so it was full of composers and we would play nothing but original music of his students. Oh, interesting. So it was like a rehearsal band, but we did some concerts along the way and it was, it was a lot of fun.
0: Sure. What was it like studying with Bob Brookmeyer?
1: It was life changing. It was amazing. Ironically, I had chosen to come to NEC to study with him because I thought I was going to continue the sort of traditional bent of my undergrad education Mm -hmm. and study with the Brookmeyer of, you know, the village Vanguard years. Sure. And, uh, Discovered very quickly that that Brookmeyer was no longer, and he had moved on to uh, some pretty esoteric concepts, intervallic composition, and non-functional harmonies, and all sorts of things that I had never really explored. So it it was a it was a sort of close call to get into his studio, given my background. Um, but thankfully, he saw some potential in the new work that I was creating. With his concepts and let me into the studio for the next two years.
0: Sure. Now, what was your, what was your what your what was your kind of inspiration or uh, what were your influences when you were in Michigan or when you first started composing, as opposed to or how did that shift then as you sort of got into different uh, approaches? So
1: Michigan was very traditionally based. I studied with Brantford Marsalis, who took us back to Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster, and started transcribing that music and living in that world Mm -hmm. for the last two years of my undergrad. So that was sort of my focus. That's the music I was listening to the writing I was doing was very traditional based, you know, transcribing some Ellington and Basie arrangements and recreating new arrangements based on form that they were using. So -hmm. much like an improviser would transcribe a solo and then reuse some of the ideas that you transcribed, composer can do the same thing, transcribe the form of a tune, the structure of a tune, the, um, you know, the orchestration, and then recreate new works based on that
0: to study the concept. Interesting. And he was doing, so you were doing composition as well as, what was Brandford teaching there? Was he doing everything or what was it? The... He was, I was just studying improvisation
1: with him in the <clears throat> generic sense. Gotcha. The composition that I did was with the classical composition department. Okay. And, whatever jazz writing I was doing was basically on my own or working with Andrew Spate who was the director of the the jazz division at the time
0: gotcha sure now so I, I just finished reading um, not too long ago Dave Ravello's book with, with the the uh, interviews with Bob Brookmeyer and it seems right. like he had he went to California for a while and something happened there and he, he turned his thing around and came back and started writing or started trying these different uh, compositional concepts like you're talking about do you have any off op- the can you are there any that you either still use as exercises or that particularly influenced you or that you think about now any of the sort of techniques for composition that he was using back then?
1: Yeah, I mean he really stressed melody and he stressed patience as a writer. So rather than moving from one idea to the next great idea to the next great idea his focus was to stay with one idea and stretch it as long as you possibly could to the Mm -hmm. point of being uncomfortable with it. (laughs) So he actually had us do an assignment once where he wanted us to sort of test the limits of a motif and stretch it as far as we possibly could. And I'm still to this day, somewhat proud that I, uh, Broke the system and had stretched it too far, and he had he had a good laugh over that and uh, complimented me on on stretching a little too far. We had to scale it back, so that That's was that good. was a great experience. And then the intervalic concept was really cool because it opens you up harmonically as well. You think of it as a melodic tool, and it is. Mm-hmm. But when you examine the results of the intervalic exercises, you can then turn it vertically. And come up with harmonic structures based on the same intervalic concepts from which you derived your melodies. Sure. And so that was a really earth-shattering concept. I'd never considered that. And once you know, I went down that path. It opened up some completely new directions for my writing.
0: Mm, cool. So for the nerds out there, give me an. Ex- can you can you give like a, a example of? maybe the beginnings of that as an exercise? Or what do you mean by the intervallic exercise?
1: Sure, so a lot of his exercises started with a blank piece of paper. And so this particular one, the top left-hand corner of the paper, we were instructed to write three notes. And from those three notes, we would analyze the intervals. So the interval between the first two notes and its inversion, the last two notes and its inversion, the first and third notes and its inversion. And then from there, we were instructed to, ro- to fill the page all the way to the bottom using nothing but those six intervals. Mm. And so, again, it takes you out of your comfort zone. It takes you out of your cliches. It takes you out of anything that you would traditionally use in your writing and puts you in a different place. And once you filled the page, you would go back and play through the extended melody. And with a pencil circle... The ideas that you thought were valuable, and then you would take those particular ideas onto a new piece of paper and then develop those ideas separately, and that's what became your composition.
0: Okay. And that's where you you take these these individual ideas and then create a new piece out of it. Correct. Now, do you feel like, as a composer, there is a, something at odds with the... I'm gonna do experiments to try to come up with a piece as opposed to a more, let's say, organic, you know, spring from your bed in the middle of the night with the idea fully formed in your head kind of approach. How do you navigate the difference between the or, or is there a, even a conflict between those two ideas? I don't think
1: there has to be a conflict. I think you can get into a conflict if you're not careful. But the the concept from Brookmeyer's perspective was what you called the blank page syndrome. So mm-hmm. as a writer, you've got this blank page in front of you. What do you do with that blank page? How do you create music? And so when we think about the concept of writer's block, whether you're writing you know, words or you're writing music, you can't get past the blank page. You're stuck. Sure. And you hesitate to put anything onto the page because either out of fear that it's not quite right or it's not what you're looking for, you're not sure, so you hesitate. And at the end of your writing session, you're still looking at a blank piece of paper. So he called that the blank page syndrome. And this tool, this intervallic tool, was simply a way to work through that obstacle. Mm -hmm. So it's not that he was eschewing the sort of Natural or organic process of composition. It was more when that failed you, you could go to many of his different techniques, including this intervallic exercise, to gain that inspiration that you needed to continue on with the piece.
0: Sure. I can imagine, too, that if you're Bob Brookmeyer and you've spent already, by the time he's at NEC, however many, whatever it would have been, you know, 40 years or something creating constant music you really need a kick in the pants like that to just try to get yourself out of your comfort zone.
1: Very true. I think if if there's a possibility of writing all the possible melodies, he might have gotten pretty close
0: <laughs> at that point. Sure. So you were there, you were at NEC with, um, uh, with J.C. Sanford. Yes. Who you then later on uh, collectively created the Schumacher-Sanford Sound Assembly.
1: Correct. So... He was doing his doctorate while I was doing my master's. Okay. We became uh, really great friends and both had the same vision for our postgraduate adventures. Mm -hmm. And so we started this group. He came over to my house one night. We shared a bottle of wine and we said, how do we want to do this? Came up with a name, came up with a concept for the band and got started... Down that long process of of meeting some players, taking recommendations, and assembling a group of players over the next few years that we were really feeling connected to, and we felt were uh, honoring our music in a way that was propelling it forward.
0: Sure. Now, is this? Are you still in Boston at this point? Are you? Have you? I mean, you're still in Boston anyway. But is the idea starting in Boston, or where are you finding the musicians?
1: No, we went straight to New York for that. Gotcha.
0: Okay. So as so soon as you, you graduate, you said, let's figure this, let's start this band in New York.
1: Yes. That was where we thought we would have the best success finding the players mm-hmm. and having access to the sort of player that we thought was going to gel with our music.
0: Sure. Now, did you have a sound concept inv- involved in this? Because, of course, people have such an individualistic way of writing that it would be easy to combine two people into one band and have it sound like a disjunct mess of, you know, one style versus another style or something like that. Did you, did you say, all right, the, this is the vibe of the band that we're going for here, or were your writing styles similar enough or, or maybe un- in the same zone that you could operate without having to think about the specifics?
1: Yeah, there wasn't a lot of discussion about that because we were both, as you say, very much in the same zone. We had both studied with Brookmeyer for the last two years. We both loved Maria Schneider's music, Jim McNeely's music, and all of those uh, progressive jazz orchestra composers uh, when we were, you know, focused on instrumentation, orchestration, color, you know, the same sort of harmonic concepts. And uh, even though our writing styles are definitely different, they complemented each other very easily. Mm-hmm. So it, it never felt like a, a disjointed effort. It always felt like a cohesive
0: sound to the band. Sure. And that, that makes sense. That's, it sounds, that sound. I totally agree with you on that front anyway. Um, and for those of the... For everybody who's listening, the record is The Edge of the Mind. You made a record with that band in 2009? Correct. And that's been out for a while. So you can find all that music there. Yeah, Um, it's also
1: on Spotify and all the usual digital vendors as well.
0: mm -hmm, All the good stuff. Now, give me an idea who was in that band. Who did you find that was able to realize those musical concepts? Right. So, a lot of these guys were uh, Broadway
1: people. Mm -hmm. So, that gave us players who were very well-versed in doubling in the saxophone Mm -hmm. section And so we could literally throw any variety of orchestration at this group and they could eat it up. In fact, look forward to it. Sure, because it gives you a little Um, challenge to have to figure out. Right, exactly. So, you know, guys like Ben Kono, Mm -hmm. Dan Willis, Eric Rasmussen, uh, Chris Bacchus. We had Dave Rickenberg on Barry for a long time. Interestingly, a lot of those saxophone players were playing... Not their primary saxophone hmm. in that band. Um, because it did just did you do that on work- purpose
0: or it just worked out that
1: way? No, it wasn't that we did it on purpose. Well, I, I take that back. Sometimes it was actually because we we preferred their sound on alto instead of tenor, which was their typical saxophone, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also had a lot to do with just personnel at the time. So who, what, what position in the saxophone section was open, and who were we looking? You know, what position were we looking to fill? And if a, a reed player came through who was a really monster player, but was playing their secondary saxophone, then that's fine because they're going to be playing a lot of doubles anyway. Sure. Uh, John O'Gallagher is another name who came along a little later into the band. He was uh, an amazing player. And then in the trombone section, Alan Ferber, who's a monster player. Uh, Chris Olness was our bass trombone player. Mark Patterson on trombone, an amazing player. In the trumpet section, we had John Bailey. We had Dave Smith. uh, We had Bud Burge playing lead for a long time. John Owens. We had a a lot of different guys in that section. And then the rhythm section was was fairly consistent for a while, actually. We had Deanna Witkowski on piano, uh, Dave Ambrosio on the bass. Um we had John Hollenbeck on jump, on drums. Mm-hmm. And then um we had a, a couple of different guitar players. Um we had
0: uh Andy sorry. Green was on there.
1: Andy Green was our first guitar player, and then Pete McCann came around okay. a little later. Um when when Andy was was too busy. So mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of the band. We had some players in and out, but otherwise, you know, it was fairly consistent for a little while. It was great.
0: That's pretty good, because it's not easy to keep a consistent band together when you got 17 people in a group. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> That's a labor of love for sure. And at the, at the same t- the whole time you're coming down from Boston, by this time you, you were teaching it, you've been teaching at Pentucket for a long time, presumably. Right. You had started doing that. And Yeah, uh, so I
1: was commuting down for Boston and crashing on JC's couch. And uh, that's how we made it work for a long time.
0: About 11 years. go on. Sorry. About 11 years. Wow. We did that band. Uh Uh-huh. How often were you going down in the beginning when you started doing it?
1: Well, we would do a handful of reading sessions over the year, the first year or two. And once we started getting some gigs, uh, we cut back on the reading sessions and really just rehearsed leading up to an event. So we would do... You know, we'd have a, a Tuesday night hit, and we would rehearse Sunday, Monday, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple of rehearsals, long rehearsals. So I'd be down there for two or three days in a row. Sometimes I'd have to go back to teach and then come back down. It was an ordeal. Sure, yeah. But it was definitely worth it.
0: Yeah, great. Now, what was the process like recording that album? Is the, 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 the Edge of the Mind is, uh, is, a, is a great... Uh, Let's say uh, the the pinnacle of contemporary <laughs> jazz writing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. A pinnacle. I'll, I'll, uh, it's a great record. I'll take it. Um, I'll take it. Uh, yeah, that
1: record. We were really proud of that record. Um, we recorded at Systems Two in Brooklyn with Michael mm-hmm. Marciano as our engineer, who's uh, just an absolutely genius engineer. And it was it was a two day experience to record. And I'll say that, uh, well, John McNeil, I should add, was our sort of producer for that record. Uh-huh. He sat in the booth and was giving us the uh, objective feedback that we needed. I'm sure he to, was objective. To make everything work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, he was, he was fantastic. <laughs> and so, you know, it was, it was a tremendous experience. The, the one thing that really stands out from the recording, was John Hollenbeck's infinite wisdom and experience. Mm-hmm. Because he literally played with a metronome on silent at his side the whole time. So that when we had to do an alternate take, when we had to come back to a tune, redo a section, whatever it was, he was pretty much guaranteed to be at the same tempo so that when we went back in the editing process, we had very, very few issues uh, piecing things together. It was really a great, great addition.
0: Sure. And that's not easy to do, to keep the fluidity of a jazz group and the spontaneity of it and still be looking down at the metronome, the light on the metronome going the whole time. That's a tricky move.
1: Yeah, I don't know how he did it. He's an absolute monster player. Wow. Genius musician.
0: Now, there's the... I think the nature of that uh, recording too has a way about it, which is it feels to me very improvisational, and yet it's very complex orchestration and composition and arranging. I mean, the whole thing is super tight, and yet at the same time, it has a, a breathing to it that it, is, it doesn't feel like it's a stiff. Let's play the measure, you know, measures as they go. Is there any secret to that? I think maybe one of the best examples is in. Is it? It might be. Um, uh, Um, What is, what's the tune? Break, um... Breaking Point? Breaking Point, exactly. Which I think may speak to what you're talking about is that Bob (laughs) Brookmeyer exercise, isn't it? It's absolutely speaking to that. In fact, that tune
1: uh, is left over from the first, I think, year that I studied with him. Hmm. So that tune was a very specific exercise in that concept of taking a linear intervallic structure and turning it vertically to create the harmony of the piece. Interesting. So it actually, its original name was modular piece number two, <laughs> because it was the second piece I wrote for him with that system in mind. Um, and then I later changed it to a, a more, a classier title.
0: Yeah, yeah, breaking point. But, it, but it's yeah,
1: definitely, so. it definitely speaks to the concept of, of taking a singular motive and pushing it as far as you can. Sure. So it's great that you hear it that way. Uh, that's that's you know a, a huge compliment because we were trying to consciously integrate improvisation into the compositional process mm-hmm. rather than the more traditional approach of having composition, a section of improvisation back to the composition. Sure. We wanted there to be a seamlessness. And so what I did, to try to achieve that was to, in a couple of our tunes, start the soloist from a point of composition. So edge of the window is probably the best example that I can think of where the melodic line morphs directly into a composed solo line, which morphs directly into an improvised solo. So the soloist actually begins his solo as a compositional layer within the piece. Wow. Okay. So if, if you were to go back and listen to that piece and listen to John Bailey's solo, he's part of the small group that's that's playing the melody. And then what seems like more melody is actually a composed solo that I put in there for him to start him down the road of improvisation. So the the seamlessness between the melody of the tune, the beginning of the solo and what ultimately is improvised is hopefully completely blurred.
0: Sure. And now is there a way is there a way you think about that with the rhythm section as well because I know that a lot of the time that may be just a personnel thing where everybody's on it but I think maybe an example of that is and correct me if I'm wrong here but in Breaking Point there's a point where John Hollenbeck and um, Deanna, correct? Yes. Drop out for a little while. I forget who, I think it's a tenor solo on that. I, I'm not sure exactly who's playing. It,
1: yeah, it is. It's Chris Bacchus playing a tenor solo with just himself and bass. Mm-hmm. And the, the bass player, Dave Ambrosio, is playing uh, a hemiola, essentially. So he's, he's creating this unstable uh, meter. And Chris is blowing over top of it in a very fluid, organic way. And so the the very strict sort of rhythm of the earlier part of the piece becomes, it's just gone. It evaporates. And we've got this very unstable groove that develops. And when Hollenbeck comes in, comes back in, and when Deanna comes back in, it's a, it's a highly punctuated, you know, rhythmic ostinato that then is layered with horn players and takes us back to the original sort of vibe.
0: Mm-hmm. And was that planned? That was a was that part of the that was in the piece. That's part of the piece. Yeah. Now there's another piece, and I may be confused about this, uh, but there's another piece on the record someplace where wasn't there like a surprise? Like the rhythm section did something, t- made a left turn all of a sudden, and then you, you almost stopped the whole piece because you weren't sure what was going on. Yeah, that's funny that you remember that story. Uh,
1: that was in Edge of the Window, and that was, um, I think it was. I think it was the John Bailey solo, or maybe it was Deanna's solo that's right after it. I forget which one it was at this point, but in the original concept of the piece, the solo section was still under the same groove as the earlier part of the piece. It was a straight eighths, you know, um, rim click sort of sort of vibe. And over the multiple takes, um, I don't know if it was the first or second take of the tune, they, the rhythm section just went a completely different direction and completely freed it up. Basically, dropped out and we're just playing colors. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a, it was a, a vibe we had never experimented with on previous gigs or rehearsals. We had never discussed it. It just happened spontaneously. I'm sure you know the soloist inspired the rhythm section in some way to go that direction. And my my instinct was to stop because that's not what I expected to happen. Thankfully, I didn't because that was ultimately the take that we went with because it was such a great contrast to the rest of the piece. Uh, I would be you know supremely <laughs> remorseful had I not uh, had we not recorded that that section.
0: Sure. And it's a bold move by the rhythm section when you're in a recording session to roll the dice and try something completely wild, but I think that may be It's not an easy thing to achieve that that balance between the improvisation and the composition where everything goes exactly as it's supposed to go with 17 people. You can't be, you know, rolling the dice is a dangerous game a lot of the time. But when it when it works out, it's you know, it's a big payoff.
1: Absolutely. And that gets back to your, your question earlier as to whether or not that seamlessness and the organic nature of the improvisation versus the composition was to do with the players. And this is exactly where you're right, because those players were mature enough and experienced enough in this type of music that they felt comfortable just going with the moment Mm -hmm. rather than feeling obligated to stick to the plan. And that's the the beauty of that particular collection of players and the beauty of being able to work with the same players for an extended period of time. They get to know each other. uh, We get to know them as composers. And so a lot of the music we wrote over that decade was geared towards a specific player in the band, much like Ellington would have done, mm-hmm. you know, where we get to know these players and we get to know their particular approach. And we think, oh, wow, well, this, they would sound great on this tune. Let's build in a solo for that particular player. And, you know, it's for me, what made that band magical was the the people playing that music and the way they approached
0: it. Sure. And that's not an easy thing to do to be able to have the same people show up and or a relatively consistent lineup or you know keep something like that together.
1: No, especially when they're working for lunch money. <laughs> no doubt. Well, yeah. that's a
0: part of that's a part of being in New York that is really kind of inspiring is that a lot so many people are here to play creative music and you know you can play your regular gigs and your you know shows and various things like that to try to make it work but it seems like so many people that I'm I run into all the time are are more than happy to show up at the union at 11.30 on a Tuesday to play somebody's music for, you know, no money and the thrill of just getting to shed their whatever, flute chops or whatever, however it works out. Absolutely. That's the beauty of that scene. You're absolutely right. Uh, did, you t- did you ever take the band out of New York or were all the gigs that you played in New York? Everything we did was in New York.
1: I did attempt on a couple of occasions to get us into a festival or to get us... Um, you know, like a, a school sponsored event, something like that, closer to home. But it, it, it the logistics never worked out. I mean, taking a band of that size on the road is just nearly impossible without some some serious support financially. Right. So it's one thing to ask them to give up a you know a Broadway, you know, performance to come play for ten dollars in Brooklyn it's another thing to ask them to give up a couple of days of Broadway performances to work for $10 in another location.
0: Right. Of course. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing that we run into now. I mean, you go back and listen to the Duke Ellington band and that band is ridiculously tight, but somehow Duke Ellington managed to keep that band on the road, like 364 nights a year or something like that for forever. But right. We may, we live in different times.
1: <laughs> we do.
0: Uh, so, Now, give me an idea, too, of some of the other stuff that you write. So you've been writing for various different ensembles, solo saxophone performances, and uh, give me an idea of some of the other things that you've worked on as a composer.
1: Sure. Well, the solo saxophone, let's start with that. So as a saxophonist, writing for that instrument is comfortable for me Mm -hmm. and gives me an advantage knowing the intricacies of the instrument and what it's truly capable of. So, I was lucky enough to be commissioned by a friend and former classmate in Michigan, uh, Josh Thomas, who is a saxophonist in the Coast Guard Band. Mm-hmm. And he came to me years ago with the concept of writing a heavy metal saxophone piece. And I thought that was just fantastic. Uh, we both grew up listening to Van Halen and always idolized Eddie Van Halen as a guitarist. Uh-huh. So, his suggestion was hey, let's write a really, truly outlandish, virtuosic, just over the top, crazy solo saxophone piece based on the music of Eddie Van Halen. And I just, I was totally enthralled by that concept. I thought it was absolutely brilliant and sure. sounded like an absolute blast. So, I bought a gigantic book of Van Halen transcriptions. And started analyzing Eddie Van Halen's music and putting it together and understanding it in a way that allowed me to repurpose it in a way for Mm -hmm. saxophone. And the result was really interesting. We both really enjoyed the piece and it got a great response from the classical saxophone world. So we did two more over the coming years. We did one based on the music of um, Victor Wooten, the bassist. Mm -hmm. And then we just recently... I think it was all a year ago, he premiered the third iteration, which was based on the music of Max Roach. Oh, interesting. And that one was a lot of fun to play because when you think about rhythm, uh, the the options are just endless. And so we we really had a lot of fun figuring out how to translate a drummer's music and his approach to rhythm and to melody and to composition in general because Max was a, a very creative player and, and many of his extended solos are much like compositions in themselves. Sure. And so again, retooling that music for saxophone was, was a blast. So, you know, besides that, I've, I've done some, some small saxophone ensemble stuff. I've done some piano work, um, some large ensemble work, but you know, the majority
0: of what I've done has been in some format of the jazz orchestra. Sure. Now let me ask you this, doing the Max Roach stuff, were you thinking in terms of taking his solos or it wasn't his compositions necessarily, or how did you, what was the process of converting Max Roach into solo saxophone? Because that may be a daunting task for many. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. So again, just
1: like the Eddie Van Halen piece, I did a lot of transcribing of his drum solos Mm -hmm. Um, both small group solos and some of his extended solo works on drum set. And the thing that I noticed right away when I actually started analyzing them was how compositional they were, how structured they were, how motivic his playing was Mm -hmm. and how much like Brookmeyer, he would take a single motif and stretch it so much farther than you thought was possible. And so that's kind of where I started with the piece. And mm-hmm. that concept that he employed in his drum set playing was the same concept I employed in the saxophone piece. And then it was just a matter of figuring out what I wanted to do melodically and harmonically to support those rhythmic devices.
0: Huh. So you're, ta- so you're taking like little motifs from the, the Max Roach uh, concepts and then sort of writing them melodically for saxophone. Correct. Yeah. I'm sure there's more to it than that, but that's the foundation. <laughs> great wild all right so I wanted to talk to you about education uh, you have been lead- you've been running the Pentucket Regional high School jazz program for 20 years now 20 years pretty wild huh it is very wild <laughs> I would not have put money on that but here we are is that right and yeah. but and uh, a lot of people i mean nobody well the people who are from the west newbury area are going to know what we're talking about here but nobody else is going to know anything about pentucket necessarily but it's a remarkable program because it's a small town in the middle of uh, you know northern massachusetts with fewer people than are in the standard school district even though it's three towns combined and yet it's had this very unusual—I'm sure that—I don't know if you see this from your perspective, having built it up from the ground, but it's a very unusually—I um, don't know what the best way to put it is, but it's a fascinating program in the area. Because not only is there a big band, which is standard now among jazz programs, but you've got a, a high-level combo operation, uh, operating, and then how many blues ensembles now? I just one, the improv class, as it's now called. Okay,
1: and then the feeder program, which is the middle school jazz band.
0: Yeah. And then there's been a lot of, I, I would say, for the size of the school, which again, has a very, it's a small band and it's, a, it's not a big school, but for the size of the school, there's been a lot of people that have come out uh, of that program as professional musicians, or even now there's a couple of us playing jazz music in New York. Uh, and I wanted to know if you wanted to give a, a, um, a public apology to all those people for <laughs> setting them down the path to a life w- of music. Yeah, I was
1: absolutely going to offer that apology. <laughs> <laughs> as, as you probably remember, uh, as part of my what I feel is my duty as an educator, when a student comes to me and mentions that they want to pursue music, my first move is to talk them out of it. Sure. And if they come back to me and say, no, I still want to do this, then I'm all in to support them and to help them but it's it's been a it's been a good fail safe because a couple of students along the way a few actually have have really chewed on that question of mm-hmm. wait do i actually want to do this do i actually want to live the life that he's describing and they've made different choices and that's moved that's turned out really great for them sure so it it's it's been a it's been a good tool
0: yeah <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of a um when i was in ithaca John Bailey actually came up to do a master class. And one of the things that he said that stuck with me is he said, if you can do anything else, do that. (laughs) But but he said, if you can't, then you're obligated to be a musician. Very well said. Very well said. That's always been in the back of my mind because at the end of the day, I mean, there are things that I could technically do, but there's always that drive to return to the music that I think would be Unbearable if I had to, you know, if I had to sit in an office job and make a normal weight, you know, normal living or whatever.
1: Absolutely. And I, I like his use of the word obligated, not to get too philosophical, but. are no, you can get if, philosophical, man. We're going in. I, Don't worry. About it. <laughs> we can go down that path. Okay. Well, to, to lift the lid on the rabbit hole then, um, you know, if we start to think about our possibly predetermined purpose for being on this earth, then one could say that you are obligated to put forth that gift of music. That's your role on this planet. That's your job. And to shirk those duties would be a travesty. So I like that he says obligated because it takes a certain kind of person to pursue music professionally. It takes a certain kind of creative spirit to do it effectively and we can't afford to waste those souls <laughs> they need to be <laughs> they, they need to be doing their job uh so that we can you know move forward and make this world a better place
0: sure i i fully agree um, now what do, do you think? I think this is going to be a little self, uh, reflective, so I don't know if you're going to, I don't know if this is too much to ask you to analyze this, but what would you say is if there is a, an element of the way that the, that you've run the Pentucket program, what is it that you think makes it work the way that it works? Cause I, I would, I mean, I think, I don't know if you can tell cause it's not obvious. Um, you know, but it's, it's it's been a very it's unusually successful program, given the circumstances. It is given the resources and given what you're doing. What is right. it that drives it forward or or compels so many people? You know, so many people in that world to get into the combo and to really work. And
1: that's a that's a difficult question to answer. I think you could probably answer it better than I could, honestly, having sure. having been on the other side of that equation. But I think a couple of things helped the process especially at the at the beginning stages of, of the development mm-hmm. when i started that program i was very much engaged in the new york scene i was very much very much engaged in in the local boston scene still gigging and and playing professionally and my students at the time recognized that they saw that they admired that because i think we've all known plenty of teachers who uh, no longer practice their craft. Sure. And I think students in general can gain more respect or get there quicker if they see you actually practicing what you're teaching. Sure. On a real level. And so I think I was able to get students to buy in to what I was bringing to them. I was, I was able to get students to dedicate themselves to the music because they saw firsthand, uh, what it could do. And they saw, you know, what I was working on and that was some source of inspiration for them. I think the other thing, (laughs) this is going to sound weird, but I didn't give the students a lot of choice and that sounds perhaps contrary to a good educator. But when I started the program, I sort of laid it out. This is the music we're going to play. You're not going to call the shots. You're not going to say, well, I want to play this more modern stuff. I want to play this fusion stuff. I want to play some rock and roll on the jazz band. There was no opportunity for the students to, to get involved at that level. I came in, I said, we're doing traditional jazz. We're going to do it well. And from that point forward, there were just, it was, that was the expectation of the students coming through. Sure, and I think that really helped to build a cohesive approach to learning jazz that everybody could rally around, and it mm-hmm.
0: still, uh, you know, continues on today. And I, I, coming from my perspective as the student, uh, I can say that that certainly had a substantial impact on me. Uh, as an example, we would do like the Newburyport High School Jazz Festival or whatever it was, and there might be a school that came in there to play like the Peter Gunn theme or right. to play some like rock thing or whatever and it seems counterintuitive because th- i'm sure that in some large regard the purpose of that is to draw students into the music but to me for you to have said oh, no we're playing Moten swing we're going to play you know boogie stop shuffle the mingus chart we're going to play a big band arrangement of boplicity we're going to play duke ellington charts and you know, the real stuff. I feel like in high school in particular, it you have a real, um, you can really detect when somebody's being ingenuous about trying to teach you something. And to me, that that meant that we, it, it gave an authenticity to the music. It was like, no, we're here to play real music here. And the, the other thing about it that I think is important is that the music is good. It's good whether you know it's good or not. You know what I mean? <laughs> like Duke Ellington charts are good. And I think a lot of the time, Kids, it doesn't matter how old you are, what your exposure to it is, you can recognize good. But I think probably one of the reasons that people maybe don't get into it is because it, I don't, I don't know. I think it may be um, uh, to use it a, a kind of broadly a marketing problem or something like that. You know, like you don't think of it as being like, oh, this is a cool thing that I want to do. But if you're in a position to say no, this is what we're doing, and you're you you're given the opportunity to get into the music, then it's amazing. Then you can really dig into the 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 real power of those those pieces.
1: Right. I think you're, you're spot on and your comment about being disingenuous is really a great point because I think if a person is truly authentically passionate about a subject, people are going to engage in that subject. But if I'm standing in front of the band and we're playing the Peter Gunn theme, for instance, I'm not truly passionate about bringing forth that music, and the students will see that. They'll feel that. Sure. And so, Wait, no
0: disrespect to the the Peter Gunn no, theme, by the way, or, no, absolutely or not. It's Mancini or whoever a great,
1: wrote that in the first place, but... Yeah, it's a great theme. It's a great theme. Uh, yeah, it's a great theme, um, but, you know, whatever. But but for for the program that I wanted to, to develop, it wasn't the direction I wanted to go. Sure. And so if I can stand up in front of that class and be vocally passionate and enthused about Duke Ellington, then I think students of that age, especially... Are going to buy in and they're going to say, Who's this crazy guy up here talking about this music I've never heard? Maybe I should check it out. And then, as you say, they can recognize what good music sounds like. And from there, it's sort of self perpetuating. The students take on the responsibility of exploring that music on their own.
0: Sure. And once you get into it, it's easy. You know, you can get hooked. And here we are. Man, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, uh, one of the best examples of that. And I, I, this is a teacher we both had at one point, is John Heiss. At NEC, who sure. was you were actually I took that class probably because you recommended me to take the class, but I took his class on Ives Ive, Schoenberg, and Stravinsky and uh, Heiss, for everybody listening has been around since the beginning of time. He, he worked <laughs> with uh, Stravinsky when he was a kid and he was a guy who sat in these rehearsals and checked the notes and made sure that the copyists did their jobs right and everything. But this dude was more enthused about the music of Charles Ives than I am about anything. <laughs> you know? I mean, he was like, it was amazing listening to him sit up there and talk about this stuff, and that's totally infectious. When you're into it and you can convey that to people, that means as much as anything because you know, you're going be, to get into it. I can't listen to Charles Ives the same way now, having listened to just him geek out about all the intricacies of the, you know, of the music. Absolutely. Infectious
1: is the perfect word. Uh, i had already heard Ives's music when I took that class. So I had a, I had an interest already, but again, seeing him and hearing him speak about that music and tell stories about parties and other things related to the music, it was just, he was so passionate about it that you couldn't help but follow along. It was absolutely beautiful.
0: Yeah, I think he's still there. He was there when I was there. Is that In right? T- Twenty twelve. He may still yeah. be hanging around. It's pretty. Amazing. I do
1: very much remember that moment where I I obligated you to take that class. <laughs> I said <laughs> this, will be, I this will be this will be hands down the very best class you ever take at NEC.
0: Yeah, it was amazing. Yep, and uh, so. Now, on top of the big band, which is a common thing in high schools, you started, I don't know if you did this immediately, but you started a combo, which is somewhere between usually six to six or seven, eight people, whatever, five to eight people, I don't know how ever it's gone over the years, doing small group improvisation and understanding the you know bebop and other small group musics.
1: Right. I did start it very, the the very first semester that I took over the program. I started at Pentucket in the fall of 2000. And was invited to just sort of hang out with what was the jazz band at the time, mm-hmm. um, under the direction of the current band director. And he actually left mid-year, and the fine arts director asked me to take over the jazz band, which met like you know once a week for an hour after school in the evening. And uh, right away, I pulled some students out of that group who were more invested. In, in learning jazz, and put them in a small group context,
0: and we've had the combo ever since. Mm. Do you remember, this is not going to matter to anybody, but do you remember who was in that, who was in the original, the, the very first combo? I don't know if I'm yeah, going to know. I, I may know him, that would have been just before my time. Dan Dowd was playing bass. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Adam Duplissy was playing drums. Um... Let's see. I think Eric Reardon was playing guitar, maybe Christina Grandoni on saxophone. Uh Bart Baker I think was playing trumpet in that very first iteration. That could be it. Sure. Now, oh, I no, I remember uh sorry, one more Sasha Mixis was playing piano in that group as well.
0: Okay. Now, I remember that at least the the tail end of that group and as a kid that was also super inspiring to be able to see people who are my, not my peers, but whatever, a couple years older than me doing this stuff. Uh, To me, I mean, even though you can listen to the records and you go see, you know, professionals play, there was something about, all right, well, here are these other people that are doing this. It was super exciting. I was like, man, this is amazing. We can do this. And I think that's a part of the program as well, is that idea of kind of a mentorship of having the older students bring up the younger students and teach, you know, sort of teach within the program.
1: Right. That is a a huge part of the program, not only within the program, but the alumni coming back and doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So you, you were part of the article that I wrote a few years ago discussing that very concept of this cycle of mentorship within the program where high schoolers are mentoring the middle schoolers and alumni come back and mentor the high schoolers. And, you know, I, in fact, learn from the alumni coming back as well and become a better teacher better musician as a result. So we have this beautiful cycle of mentorship and education happening with everyone in the program being involved, which is a really beautiful thing. And I think your comment about being inspired by the combo when you were in middle school, I think part of that is the independence that that group practiced Mm-hmm. So if you think about a big band or, or any sort of large ensemble, they're all sitting behind music stands with music in front of them. And there's a conductor that's leading the group. And it, it, it's a wholly different experience from the small group jazz experience, or at least how I approach it, which was no director student, students are, are completely in charge. Um, not, not of the rehearsal process, but of, of the performance. There's no music. Everybody's playing from memory. We've transcribed or we've learned the music in some other way. And there's a, there's a, you know, dare I say an impressiveness to that, you know, to the general public and to students, younger students who are thinking, wow, how do they do that? And it, it becomes this inspiring nugget for the younger students to, to work hard and push themselves to be in that group at some point.
0: Sure. So give me an idea. Well, I know. I was there. I know how this works. But give the <laughs> give the people an idea of what it looks like, um, let's say, when you're learning a piece with the combo. What's the sure. process?
1: It's evolved over the 20 years, but in general, I don't hand out any music to that group. There's no lead sheets. There's no handing over of a chord progression. We do some combination of in class transcribing and at home transcribing. So if we're going to learn you know a new tune, then I'll I'll play the recording for the students in class so they hear it. I'll go to the piano and I'll play through the chord progression one quarter at a time and the students will have to notate as best they can the harmonic progression. So you know, I'll give them the root of the first chord, I'll play it with the voicing over top, and they'll have to tell me, okay, that's a Dom 7 chord, or that's a minor 7 chord, and now that they know the root, they can tell me, oh, that's a C minor 7 chord. I'll go to the next chord, and I don't tell them the root. They've got to hear the root movement, hear the chord quality, and we kind of go through this collective process as a group until we get all the way through the tune, And, you know, whether they get 40% of it correct, or 90% of it correct, or 0% of it correct, they're learning, and they're growing their ears. And it, over time, gets them to the point where they can do this on their own, and they can learn music without reading it, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, I think we would all agree that the best way to learn music, you're going to retain it more effectively, you're going to know it more intimately and therefore, as an improviser, be able to improvise within that context more effectively.
0: Sure. And you're also giving them tunes that, I mean, some of the stuff I've played in combo, I've played countless times since then in professional contexts. That may also speak to the idea that you're treating this, not, not only the combo, but the big band, as a professional organization. I, I imagine that comes from your background in you know being in the scene throughout the time that you're teaching. But it's the idea that, all right, well, this is actually music that we're going to play. This is real music. Right. I think
1: that was, that was a really important factor for me in developing the program. You know, selfishly, I didn't really have the patience to work on music that I didn't think was worthy of working on. And sure. that You know, that sounds a little arrogant, but as, as an educator, you know, you're looking at a pretty long haul you know, I've been in it 20 years, I've got at least another 10 years to go. If I'm not satisfied creatively and musically within the context of being an educator, you know, burnout is a real thing. And it's, it's, it's very likely under those conditions. And so, you know, I think it was subconscious to a great extent that I chose music that I really thought was great music, but it's also you know, I wanted these students to be exposed to the real thing and not a watered down version of the real thing. Sure. Um, there, in my opinion, there are a few instances where a watered down version is going to be as effective an educational tool as the real thing. Sure. Even if the real thing is slightly out of reach.
0: Yeah. And we felt that. I mean, doing the, you know, you'd give us. I remember you giving us a CD, a burned CD. I don't know if that's still a thing. <laughs> Nobody's got CD players <laughs> it's anymore. It's definitely not <laughs> a thing. <laughs> all right. So now you've got some space age thing on the internet or whatever. But you used to give us a CD with, you know, it would be like Horace Silver's. Um, what was that tune? No, That doesn't really matter. It's something off. Um, whatever. I remember a lot of these. A lot of these tunes we were doing, and that and that opens the gate to all this other stuff that you might hear. I remember. Uh, Manbox and I used to go to Dino Records on Tuesday afternoons and, you know, spend all our allowance money or whatever on various CDs. But it would be, all right, well, I heard that one track on the CD. Let's dive into the whole record. What record does that come from? And then you pick up, you know, the whole thing and then you go down that path. And jazz obviously is an extremely deep well of possible, (laughs) you know, recordings or pieces or musicians. But that's the start is to just dig in and try to find where that music came from.
1: Right. And I I think that was a true testament to you guys, to the students who were willing to take on that self-exploration responsibility. So as, as many of my students have commented, you know, I don't really give answers to questions. The student yes, comes I to I me remember. with a question, I give them more <laughs> questions to, to get them to, to go and find their own answer to the question. Um, and that's, that's really what you're talking about is, you know, what is this music is there more to this music that I'm playing in rehearsal? And so you go to a place like Dino and you explore and you find that, yes, there is a lot more to this music than the tune we're playing in rehearsal. And that, you know, inspires you to explore further. And that process makes you a better musician. It makes you a better learner, that responsibility, taking it on yourself and that independence in your learning process is crucially important.
0: Now, here's something that I struggle with a little bit as an educator, and I think you would be able to shed some light on this, is there are, I don't want to say two conflicting um, concepts, but maybe they are. But they seem to be on opposite sides of a certain spectrum, and that is one is having a, a super disciplined approach to being able to play your instrument and to be able to, let's say, recreate stuff from, you know, licks and, and melodies and what have you from our heroes— and then the other side of it is is having a an individual voice, and I feel like you encouraged us to pursue our individual voice as musicians in the beginning, and had a, and had a wide sort of range of um, let's say input, uh, uh, you know, parts of the recipe or whatever, and. At the same time, you really committed to, all right, but you have to understand how this music works and you have to be able to play. So how do you juggle the balance between, all right, we're going to try to pursue a creative approach, but without just throwing technique and tradition out the window?
1: Yeah, so this gets back to my studies with Brantford and his approach. In the very first visit that he made to campus— when the press were there, he had just left the tonight show. Okay. And they were asking him all these questions and he was, he was kind of getting irritated and, and somebody asked him about, you know, his brother and playing all this old music and all, you know, this whole contentious sort of debate. And Brantford made a comment that I still remember. He said, I didn't feel like I had developed my own personal voice until I was 34. And so that really stuck with me. That's a whole different timeline than the typical high school student is really aware of. Sure. What, is, what, is, what does it mean to be 34 when you're 16 or 17? You have no concept of that. And so what I try to teach my students is that you have a lifetime to develop your own sound and your own approach. And the only way you're really going to get there is by understanding what's come before you and building on it or turning it into a new direction. And so that's kind of the approach I take. I give them the freedom to explore any players they want, any musics they want, sort of as a dessert after they've eaten the meal that I've provided for them. So if I say, go and listen to Jimmy Cobb, because you need to understand how to play a proper ride cymbal pattern, then I expect that student to go and listen to Jimmy Cobb and be able to play like Jimmy Cobb before they even try to play like Elvin Jones. Sure. Or, you know, somebody like John Hollenbeck. No way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great to listen to that music and be inspired by it and set goals for yourself to be like that player at some point. But the fastest way to get there is to understand what Jimmy Cobb did and sure. build on it.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually, is, the fastest, is it being the fastest route. Because if you're just starting from... I mean, if you start from Anthony Braxton and try to go backwards to, you know, figure out how to play like, you know, whatever. But Braxton was listening to, to uh, Paul Desmond and whoever else. Like these people right. are, you know, you're building on everybody else.
1: Absolutely. And th- the ability, you know, th- those players could do those magical things because they had command over the basic craft. Sure. Without command over the basic craft, there's no way they could do, you know, the pyrotechnics that we all associate with some of those players.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense to me. Is it's I've always thought about. it. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's probably stemmed from you in some regard, but um, is just the idea that who you are as a person, as a musical personality, has a lot to do with just what you're drawn to aesthetically. Is the is the musicians that you like and that you've emulated in some respects.
1: Sure, and and not just musicians, but visual artists you know writers uh, taking inspiration from nature you know it's 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 not just about emulating fellow musicians sure
0: uh so now how have how have things changed in the last couple of weeks with this uh whole coronavirus lockdown here they've changed mighty significantly
1: it has been a true challenge as an educator to find ways to navigate this new world. But I will say that it's been really amazing because I have been forced to move in new directions than I would Mm -hmm. otherwise have gone. You know, when you think about a traditional program, you're standing in front of an ensemble, you're rehearsing music, and you're doing those sorts of things. We can't do any of those things now. So how do you fill their time? And I found that upon reflecting on this this quarantine, this these strange and unusual times that we're living in, there was something more important than really truly playing your C major scale well. There was something that transcended the basic mechanics of playing our instrument and rehearsing. And that's where I chose to focus my energy as an educator. So to give you some examples, I had my students chew on the big concept of what does it mean to be a musician? And why are we musicians? Why are we doing this? And getting them to think about the fact that you can see music as a gift that you give to someone else, as we were talking about before, rather than something you're doing for yourself. Mm-hmm. We think of artists as selfish and we are in some ways, I'm certainly selfish with my time because I, I need and I value that time to be able to pursue my craft. But ultimately the music that I'm playing is for others. It's a gift to those people for them to listen to, to be moved by whatever, what have you. And, I wanted the students to understand the power they had as musicians to not only inspire them to become better musicians, but to put themselves out in the world as musicians giving to others. And so we talked a lot about empathy, a concept that, you know, perhaps most high school students are not super comfortable with or familiar with. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I said, you know, one of the one of the first big projects I did with the kids was to tell them, you know, look, think about your extended family. Think about your friends, your, your acquaintances. Think about somebody who could possibly be not doing so great right now, feeling isolated, feeling lonely, feeling scared, feeling anxious. Think about that person and give them your gift of music. So the assignment was to prepare a piece of music, and it could be, you know, there were lots of options. It could be something that a student performed live via Zoom or some other means to a distant family member in another town. It could be something they pre-recorded and emailed over. It could be a piece of music, you know, somebody else's music that they just wanted to share with that person. It could be any, any form of giving music to that other person. And after they had done so, after they had shared that music, to reach out to that person and have a dialogue, have a communication with that person and understand, you know, what you, the power that you had for that person to make them feel less anxious, to make them feel less lonely, to make them feel loved in some way. And I think, you know, I got some very insightful reflections from the students on the experience and it really made me happy to see that and to read that because that tells me these students are being good people. Rather than just good musicians and I think we could definitely use with more good people in this world so that was a, sure. that was a great thing
0: yeah you know I'll tell you it's been uh, sort of inspiring to see musicians from all walks of life uh, taking on that role in some respects like nobody can play anymore all the gigs are gone indefinitely right. which has freaked everybody out you know in music world but at the same time everybody's finding new ways to create music everybody's getting their recording chops up and creating these videos and you know i've seen i've seen so many people put together an entire big band on you know piecing it together part by part and putting something out so that people have you know it brightens people's day and it makes people happy and it, i think it is on in high school it's a one you know that's a microcosm of this but in the whole the whole music scene at large, you've got all these people who are finding what their role is when it's not just people showing up to your gig or you playing a wedding or whatever. Right. And I'll tell you something else, which, is, which I think is important and it's not easy in, a, in any, let's say, level to remember, is the idea that you're giving this stuff to people. And the, what I think about all the time is it feels like a selfish endeavor for me. I mean, a lot of my day... Is I'll wake up in the morning and sit down at the piano with sheet music, you know, with manuscript paper, and I'll spend you know two and a half hours writing, and maybe I'll get through you know sixteen bars of music if I'm lucky or something like this. And then I look at it and say, Oh, cool, okay. So I just spent I spent two and a half hours of my day writing this these you know notes on a piece of paper so that hopefully in six months I can have the band together for a gig and that people can go out and hear it and they'll hear it for 10 minutes and they'll go that was cool and then go on from there you know <laughs> yeah. and it seems sometimes like I'm like man this is this is kind of a it seems at times like a selfish endeavor but then I go back and listen to Coltrane records or I go back and listen to you know Dave Douglas's Charms of the Night Sky or one of these things like this and it's it means a ton to me you know and if these people didn't engage in what could be construed as a selfish endeavor which you know, I guess it's a, I don't know whether it is or it isn't. I mean, maybe it's both, you know, but that's really meaningful to me. And that's always important. Yeah,
1: absolutely. The comment that we, we made earlier about um, being obligated to do this, it takes a special kind of person to do what you just described. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody can sit for two and a half hours and write for the hope that six months from now, you'll have a product that you're happy with. You know that's that's sure. not a that's not something that everybody can do, and I think your your insight on these musicians who are now suddenly without gigs, they're still giving that gift of music. They couldn't not do it, right? They just exactly can't. exactly right. You know, so it doesn't matter that they're not making any money. It doesn't matter that they're spending hours a day. It doesn't, you know it. It's, it's about creating that art and putting those vibrations out into the world. It's just, it's, we're, we're wired to do that, which is a really beautiful thing. Sure. And the other thing I think is great. And, and again, my students, uh, this was, this was for them in giving to other people. You're also able to get out of your own head. So for instance, in this time that we're in right now, lots of people are anxious. Lots of people are scared you get stuck in your head and you spiral. And if you can channel the empathy for others, you'll find that you actually come out of your own head and relieve your own anxiety in the process, your own fear in the process because you're focused on helping someone else. And so, you know, really everybody in that equation wins on a significant level. And again, that's really powerful. And it's not just with music; it's with lots of things. So, if these students can walk away with that life skill, then they've really, truly found some education in the process.
0: Sure. And in that regard, this the the music education transcends music. I mean, it's about the music, you know, and that's important in and of itself. That I think is intrinsically valuable. But also, you know, you could be a lawyer, or you could be a you know a trash man, or you could be a whatever you want to be, and still have those lessons in the music floating around in the back of your mind. Absolutely. So give me an idea now, maybe on a more technical level. So I, I see that you've, you've, you've taken the opportunity of not being able to rehearse and delved into the philosophical side of this, as I might've anticipated. Um, how else are you, I mean, there's no way to record, to do ensembles or to play with anybody. Are, are there any, what, what are you given for assignments? How are you bridging the, uh, or overcoming the, the adversity here in that regard?
1: Yeah. So it's been an experiment the last several weeks. I've moved in some different directions and had to sort of abort those directions and come come to a different path because things weren't working. I tried a collaboration with the combo because, you know, as you were saying, people are putting out these amazing videos of these collaborations online and they're really tremendous. Um, and not having the skill with Final Cut Pro or anything like that and not having access to that level of program... I was limited, but I tried um, a collaboration with the combo, with the acapella app. Mm-hmm. But we ran into trouble bouncing the file back and forth, so we moved and tried GarageBand, and we ran into some compatibility issues with sending that file back and forth.
0: Sure, I can different
1: versions of the program, and so we landed on Soundtrap, which is a completely online version of GarageBand, essentially, and we're having more success with that so what we tried we're actually working on your tune right now we're working on oh, as right? as we, as we <laughs> speak this week that's pretty good huh? so we i created the, create the file everybody joins the project as a collaborator and you know i set the parameters i set the click track i set the tempo and all those things and then people are layering in their own part and i can access it at any point and make little tweaks here and there to line things up and deal with latency issues and and all of that. Um, we're almost finished with that project. Hopefully it'll be done tomorrow and we'll see how it goes. It's not ideal, and there is 0% interaction between the players. Right. Yeah. But it it does teach them some skills. You know, as a professional musician, playing with a click track is not the easiest thing to do. Playing in headphones is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Sure. So you're they're learning some skills that they can they can apply down the road and keeping them engaged in the tunes that we were already working on. Sure. So that's that's the only collaboration, but I've done a lot of listening assignments, some critical listening assignments where students are asked to differentiate between two recordings of the same tune from different okay. eras. So that's been really good, just to open up their ears and to get to listen to things differently. I did an assignment that I really liked about um, music that recordings that that changed the direction of music in some way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I did a classical version for the concert band kids and a jazz version for the jazz kids where I just threw out five, you know, groundbreaking, and maybe that's even too strong of a term, but just recordings that were significant in some way and asked them to really chew on what made those recordings groundbreaking. Sure. And talk about, you know, the context because that's always really important in the perspective at the time. And again, to get their ears open, to get them thinking about other things than just the notes on the page and to expose them to some new music that they might not have listened to in the past and get them to think about the concepts of music in different ways. I mean, one of the pieces for the classical kids was Ives, since we were talking about Ives earlier, um, Central Park in the Dark, which I know you remember from the heist class. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just... I can promise you that the students have never heard a piece like that, ever. Sure, yeah. And so that serves to just blow their mind, for one. It serves to open their ears to the possibilities that they were not even privy to previously and hopefully get them to then participate in their own music-making on a level that's, you know, truly amazing and not just, you know, going through the motions of sitting in an ensemble and playing their instrument.
0: Sure, no doubt. And then when they go back to playing music in real life, they'll have a different perspective on it than they might have had they not had to go through this.
1: I mean, that's the goal. That's the goal for sure. Um, You know, I've done some... To keep the kids playing, I've done Technique Tuesdays, where they sort of have free reign to work on some technical aspect of their instrument, and they can sort of guide themselves. I've done Instrument Maintenance Day. In fact, I included your hysterical video on how to give your trumpet a bath (laughs) for my trumpet players. Uh, So that Uh, was really great. You know, some short improvisation exercises with some play alongs, uh, doing some recording exercises where they play their, you know, for the big band kids, for instance, playing through the arrangement that's in their folder right now, along with the original recording. So they're, they're absorbing some of those intangible qualities of style and articulation and phrasing and tone quality and intonation and all that stuff in the process. Um, so that's been really great. I've given them some enrichment activities. So creating music based on their experience through this coronavirus period. So they mm-hmm. could write lyrics. They could write some instrumental music. They could compose something just to express themselves. They could do an improvisation to express their emotions. I did an experiential song diary where students, again, exploring the power of music where they had to identify their current mood for the day, choose a piece of music that exemplified or epitomized that mood, and then share a link to that song with the rest of the class. And then everybody was responsible for listening to three other posts and then commenting on it. So, again, that exposes students to new music that they would not have heard. It gets them thinking about the connection between how they're feeling and the music that expresses that feeling. I did a variation on that exercise where I asked students to uh, take care of themselves for a day. So rather than doing an assignment for myself, I said, you know what, you've been working hard You've got all this stuff going on. Take care of yourself today. Take 20 minutes, which is the length of time I'm supposed to give them. I'm supposed to occupy them. And I said, take that 20 minutes for yourself. Put on some music. Close your eyes. And just let that music bring you to a place of peace, to a place of calm, to relieve some anxiety. Whatever you need in this moment, on this day, use music to take care of yourself. And so, again, we posted in a collective document, you know, our our choices. And I always include my own in these exercises. I think that's really important for them to see that I'm part of this too. I'm a human. I'm feeling these emotions myself. And here's how I'm dealing with them. Here's how I'm processing them. Here's what I'm doing to relieve some of those anxieties and fears. And I think that, again, it brings that element of authenticity you were talking about earlier. And the students are more likely to engage if they feel like I'm not just throwing busy work at them, but I'm giving them something that I'm myself finding valuable. Sure. So I think that's really great. We've done some collective like Padlet exercises where everybody can post their thoughts and feelings and react to what other people are doing. And then I've I've mixed in some technical things, you know, having the more advanced kids work on some pretty meaty exercises to build their chops and their skills. You know, it's it's been it's been quite a variety, which has been great for me because again, I'm I'm forced to move in some new directions, and hopefully it's keeping things interesting for them in the process. I also I think it was really important for them to continue the concept of performing. So, because we overlapped with the Easter holiday, I assigned everybody an Easter performance. So they were to prepare a piece over, you know, a three-day period or something, and it could be short; didn't didn't matter. And then perform that piece for whoever was living in their home for that day, maybe on, you know, an online venue where they could perform it for family members in other locations. But some sort of performance piece uh, to keep that fresh in their mind was really important sure. for me.
0: Yeah, that that I, I've always said that um, limitation. Breeds creativity, and this is one of these instances where I think that's uh, this is what we have to deal with. Absolutely, you know? and we got to try to work around it. But you've spoken exactly to the to the couple of things that I've found as an advantage. Obviously, we're working with you know this isn't ideal circumstances here, but uh, but the the couple of things that I've found are one, it's forced everybody. I think especially jazz musicians who are used to dealing in acoustic music, and you know I've I've chosen to blow air through a tube for a living. Like <laughs> technology isn't exactly my number one best friend, but it's forced us you know sort of it's dragged us kicking and screaming into the 21st century you know being able to for example as a musician you have to be able to know how to record yourself you have to know how microphones work and you have to be able to do you know have an interface to some degree or be able to understand how some of that works anyway and now we have to or else you can't sometimes you can't participate and then stuff like this this kind of jetson style <laughs> video conference technology you know we're all jumping in it um and the other thing has been really being able to go and Honestly, to have time now to sit down and listen to records that I haven't listened to in a long time, I'll just sit down and go back to. to, I mean, I feel like a lot of the time in my normal day-to-day life, I spend so much time either playing with people or out at night or, you know, teaching in person that maybe my ears get tired or it's not as easy to find time to sit down and just actively listen to records. So I feel like my my ears have opened back up in a certain way. They've sort of like. Now now I'm I'm retaining more of the stuff that I was listening you know, that I used to listen to or hearing new records or you know absorbing stuff that I wasn't able to before. So to be able to incorporate that into the into the uh, education part of it is I think that's a big deal. I think they'll take a lot out of that, you know, away from that.
1: I totally agree. And as you were saying, we're also busy and we're jumping from place to place all day long and we listen to music in fits and spurts. We listen to a track or part of a track on the subway, you know, on the way somewhere. And the concept of sitting down and listening to an album through doesn't really happen anymore. But right, it's almost
0: exp- a dinosaur. And <laughs> I hope not, because I—I mean, I love full albums, man. But yeah, you know, we live in a different time.
1: We do, but that—that that skill of sitting still for forty minutes and listening to something all the way through is important to develop, especially in our young students who just don't have—they're <laughs> not wired that way. They've grown up in a time where it's you know fits and starts and and bursts of information left and right. Um, But also to get into albums like, you know, Ellington suites that are cohesive Mm -hmm. and to listen to the entire work, you know, like a Far East suite or something like that, listening to it from start to finish. That in in itself is an experience that's really invaluable for all of us. Sure.
0: And it takes on a different meaning than just hearing the one, just hearing Whatever it is, blue pepper. or you yeah, know, exactly. Just hearing one element of it. Yeah, amazing. Well, this has been great. I think you covered a lot of ground here. Uh, if there's somebody, let's say, let's imagine somebody's out there is starting a jazz program. Now, you here with with ages of experience in this field and various experimentations and attempts. Do you have any advice for people who are who are trying to figure out a, a trying to construct a an effective jazz program? Sure. Um, It can be difficult for
1: the non-jazz director to start a jazz program. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a different set of problems from an experienced jazz musician who's coming in as a first-time educator trying to start a program. It's a different slew of issues. But I think in either case, being patient and not overreaching is going to be really valuable for you. So you might have a grand plan for what you want your program to look like. There's no way that's happening the first year. There's no way that's happening the first couple of years. But you can get to- you can work toward that. You have to establish culture first and foremost. And that's what we were talking about earlier when we talked about not giving the students a choice of what we were going to play. I established a culture of this is what the jazz program is going to look like at Pentucket get on board or not. And I think, you know, doing that, setting the parameters as you talked about, and that's one of my teaching cornerstones as well, feeling like the stricter the parameters, the more creative we can be in our endeavors. Um, Setting those parameters nice and tight and your expectations reasonable and focusing on listening with your students because you cannot play this music unless you have put in the time listening to the music. And that's another thing that Branford really taught me was half an hour listening to music. And I mean actively listening to it, not passively listening to it. But half an hour actively listening to it is infinitely better than two hours practicing your instrument in the practice room. Because unless you really, truly know what the music is supposed to sound like, it doesn't matter what you accomplish in that technique session of two hours. You're never going to get to the spirit and the soul of the music that we're trying to make.
0: I think that's exactly right. Yep. Amazing. Well, we got anything else? I think we covered a lot of ground here, huh? That was awesome. I really (laughs) appreciate it, Bobby. Well, thanks for doing it. I appreciate it. I think people get a lot out out of the educational view and... And everything else. Thanks a lot, David. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, gang. Well, that was a lot of fun. Always great catching up with David Schumacher. Getting to pick his brain about the many facets of jazz education and composition. Hope you had a great time as well. Thanks again for sticking around, checking out another wild and crazy episode of Jazztopia. If you like the show and you'd like to keep up with what we're doing, you can follow us at soundcloud.com slash podcast. You can also share this uh, this audio on Facebook. You can find it on Facebook uh, or whatever other platform you might find it on. Now, we're going to keep trying to put these things on a different platforms, so hopefully you'll be able to get it on Apple Podcasts and all those other things before too long. We're working on it, so keep an eye out. And uh, be sure to tell your friends and uh, stick around for some more uh, educators and performers and everything else. You can also follow me on Facebook at Bobby Spellman Music or on Instagram at at Bob Spellman. And I'll sure to, be sure to keep you up to date with when we're putting out new episodes every Thursday. We'll be putting out a new show. Uh, in which we get to we get to get deep into the world of jazz and improvised music with uh, all the creative improvisers and performers and composers that I've had the the honor and pleasure to get to talk to. Uh, so come back next week. I'll see you then. Everybody, stay safe. All right. Thanks very much. I'll see you.